Malaria is an infectious disease caused by single-celled microorganisms called plasmodiums. These microorganisms are parasites that live inside mosquitoes, in particular the Anopheles mosquito genus, of which there are about 460 species, 100 of which are known to be transmitters of malaria, though fewer than half of that number are common transmitters of this parasite. Because female mosquitoes are the ones that bite, they are the ones that transmit their plasmodium parasite to other species, and the Anopheles gambi is one of the most well-known of this mosquito genus because it sometimes carries the plasmodium falciparum parasite, which is the most dangerous and deadly when transmitted to humans through these mosquitoes' saliva which is transmitted, by the way, because mosquito saliva has special properties that keeps blood from clotting. So they jab their human prey with their proboscis, inject a little saliva into the blood, which keeps it from clotting so they can drink their fill before the wound starts sealing itself up. And that is how the parasite is transmitted from mosquito to human. These little transmitted parasites once inside a human host, circulate through the bloodstream, eventually reaching the liver and setting up shop, reproducing wildly, and in turn, beginning an infection process that does not manifest any symptoms for somewhere between 8 and 30 days, on average. After that asymptomatic period, the now multitudinous microorganisms rupture the liver cells they've been hiding and reproducing in and shoot out toward the human host's red blood cells, which is the beginning of a new stage of this organism's life cycle. It generally makes it to this next stage, still undetected by the host's immune system, by hiding inside the host's liver cell membrane the one that it eventually ruptures, kind of like hitching a ride in the trunk of a car to make it through a security checkpoint and then blowing up the car once you are safely through. Once they've reached the red blood cells, they hide out in there, reproduce even more, and then repeat that previous liver cell cycle, rupturing the cells that they're hiding in to reproduce, spreading to more blood cells, hiding out, reproducing, rupturing, and on and on and on, causing what is experienced by the human host as waves of fever caused by these new rupture and wave and reproduction cycles that cause the body to panic, but to often not be able to figure out what is causing the damage that it is detecting, hence the continuation of this cycle. Some malarial infections are thus fairly brutal for a period of days or weeks, with the host of these catalytic microorganisms experiencing flu-like symptoms that look a bit like a lot of other diseases and conditions, which can make diagnosis tricky. In areas where malaria is common, they've managed to differentiate between types of fever, though, including distinguishing between what's called tertian fever, which is defined by cyclical waves of feeling suddenly very cold, then shivering uncontrollably, then experiencing a rapid onset of fever, then sweating, 
a pattern that repeats every two days, like clockwork, distinguishing between that and what's called quartan fever, which is the same, but it occurs every 36 to 48 hours instead of a regular every two days. Though in some cases, that term can also refer to a less severe but more continuous fever that lasts for days without abating. While in the midst of a malarial wave, sufferers can also experience complications, ranging from respiratory distress to kidney failure. Some people also develop a severe form of the disease that travels to the brain, while others experience spontaneous bleeding, low blood sugar, an enlarged spleen, or the symptoms of shock. Pregnant women with malaria face a dramatically increased likelihood of stillbirth, miscarriage, and dangerously low birth weight in their newborns that do come to term. Perhaps the most debilitating aspect of malaria, though, is that it sometimes comes back. During the period in which it's hiding out in the red blood cells and cyclically reproducing, rupturing the cells, spreading, and repeating that process, some of those microorganisms don't follow through with the whole cycle. And they basically just hide out there, usually in the red blood cells, but sometimes in their human host's bone marrow. And these hidden plasmodiums then pop out and try to get that cycle going again, sometime after the initial cycle is over and done with, usually between 8 and 24 weeks after that initial infection has subsided. What's more, this can keep happening. That relapse can lead to more hidden microorganisms, which can then lead to another relapse, and the whole thing can just keep going and going and going forever, potentially. And this is a big part of why malaria is considered to be one of the most impactful environmental pressures on the human genome in recent history. Not only can it wipe someone out and make them unproductive and less likely to survive, exposing them to horrible symptoms and also potentially complications that could literally kill them, it also dramatically reduces birth rates and increases infant mortality rates in afflicted regions. So groups that failed to evolve resistances to this disease and who lived in areas where it has long been prevalent haven't typically survived. They would just be a whole lot less likely to be able to keep going over time compared to the human groups that did develop some kind of genetic resistance. Thus, many human beings have inherited genetic traits that can help them survive malaria if they catch it, generally through some kind of mutation in how their blood cells function. The upside is that some groups who have lived in malaria-heavy locations for centuries are about seven times less likely to catch the disease than folks who don't share their genetic makeup. The downside is that many of these mutations come with side effects that can make a person more vulnerable to other conditions, and that can cause genetic issues if they end up with too many copies of a particular mutated gene, as is the case with sickle cell anemia, which manifests when a person is born with two copies of a mutated beta-globin gene, which in isolation can raise resistance 
to malaria, but which in pairs can generate a propensity for what's called a sickle cell crisis, which basically means something horrible happening to their blood, which can last about a week, manifest in their chest, their eyes, their spleen, their skin, or elsewhere throughout their bodies, lead to hospitalization, and can be triggered by things like dehydration, a change in temperature, or an unrelated infection. Sickle cell alone, and again, this is just one of several known genetic mutations that seem to have been evolutionarily selected for because they augment a person's resistance to malaria, but sickle cell alone accounted for nearly 115,000 deaths in 2015. And though there are some treatments, and even in some cases cures for this condition, including blood transfusions and bone marrow transplants, it's still a fairly brutal chronic condition that many people have to deal with because of pure genetic bad luck that probably had the best of intentions. What I'd like to talk about today are existing and some potential near-future treatments and preventions from malaria itself and how such treatments and preventions might change a great deal for a large number of people around the world. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. For thousands of years, at least, that's just how far back we have recorded evidence, malaria has plagued human beings on all continents in which they have lived. So all six modern until recently human habitable continents, which excludes only Antarctica. The ancient Chinese and ancient Greeks in particular suffered from this disease as large parts of their sprawling realms were within the band of mostly warm and moist climates, roughly accumulated around the equator where the relevant mosquitoes and their parasitic stowaways typically thrive. But there's reason to believe other cultures within that globe-encompassing climactic belt have a long, rich history with this disease as well, as traditional stories and customs and remedies have long existed in places where writing really wasn't much of a thing, and oral tradition was favored. One such old-school remedy, this one used in parts of Peru, was derived from the bark of the cinchona tree which was eventually broken down by scientists in 1820, showing that it contained a substance called quinine, which is also an ingredient in tonic water, but was primarily used from the 1600s at least until the 20th century to treat malaria and other parasitic diseases. Though quinine seemed to help in regions where this tree was available, the treatment and prevention of malaria was otherwise hobbled by a scientific theory that was widely held, but which was eventually proven to be incorrect. Miasma theory posited that, in essence, disease was caused by miasmas, which meant roughly bad air. And you can imagine how getting the origin of diseases wrong might make preventing those diseases a bit of a lost cause. Sometimes folks would stumble upon something that seemed to work, like the bark of the cinchona, refined just so, but they still thought the disease they were treating was caused by malevolent air, basically. So getting to the root of the matter and preventing people from getting the disease in the first place and treating the disease rather than the symptoms weren't really options that were on the table. 
This theory was originally formalized by Hippocrates back in the 4th century in ancient Greece, but it held sway all over the global medical community, not universally, but nearly, until 1880, at which point germ theory was introduced, published, and began to be accepted by folks who could no longer deny that there seemed to be tiny living things everywhere, and that these things seemed to be associated with all of these diseases that we, until recently, thought were caused by bad air. And to be clear, they were not 100% wrong with that miasma theory, depending on how you look at it. Yes, bad air was not the culprit, but those who believed this theory believed that this bad air originated with things like contaminated water and bad hygiene and other such things that are also generally associated with germ theory-based conceptions of disease. So while they were wrong about why these things can lead to disease, they were right that they were, at times, associated variables and outcomes, which, all things considered, is not terrible for a species that hadn't yet developed lenses strong enough to allow us to see the microscopic world. And actually, some people globally, but mostly in the Eastern world, did manage to get the outline of germ theory right, even hundreds or in a few cases nearly a thousand years before those lenses that would allow them to see that microscopic world were invented. So we don't entirely suck at science as a species. Some people got it right way earlier than seems likely. And when a good, modern, supportable-by-evidence theory did emerge we switched over relatively quickly. Now, all that said, malaria has been hounding us for most intents and purposes since the beginning of history, and we only very recently got around to understanding that it was caused by microorganisms and not poisonous air. An association between malaria and mosquitoes was originally formalized in 1880 and eventually proven in the late 1890s, and that proof won the scientist behind it, a British medical doctor named Ronald Ross, a Nobel Prize in 1902. This revelation, which again was no doubt suspected by some, but never proven or widely accepted before essentially the early 1900s, led to the development of all sorts of mosquito control methods and technologies intended to reduce the number of malaria parasite-carrying pests in order to, as a secondary effect, reduce the number of malaria infections in humans, an approach called vector control. Many early controls of this kind involved spraying pretty much everything, but especially homes and standing water, where mosquitoes tend to congregate and procreate with repellent based on DEET or picaridin. Often more effective, based on the data available, though, are mosquito nets that are treated with that type of repellent and the spraying of mostly just indoor walls with repellent so that the insects just generally avoid spaces where humans gather and sleep. Most other methods of prevention have either proven insufficiently effective or have been shown to be almost entirely ineffective. And though nets and other such environmental modifications have dramatically reduced malaria infection numbers, which in turn has increased health outcomes and birth survival rates in impacted countries, there seems to be a ceiling on how effective such interventions can be. A lot of people 
still get malaria, and it still distorts the lives of a great many people around the world and the societies in which they live. The Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation estimates that in 2017 alone, about 620,000 people died worldwide of malaria. Most of those deaths were children. About 57% of fatalities associated with malaria are children younger than five. A fairly gruesome stat from that same organization is that every 12th child that died in 2017 died of malaria. And in sub-Saharan Africa, a region heavily impacted by this disease, 12% of all child deaths are from malaria. According to data recently released by the World Health Organization, in 2019, malaria caused around 229 million medical episodes globally, and about 409,000 deaths. And it's estimated that about 94% of those deaths that year were in Africa, which, as I mentioned, is not the only region plagued by malaria. India is heavily hit by this disease as well, and so are parts of northern South America, Southeast Asia, Central America, and Mexico. But Africa's malaria-injecting mosquito species is especially aggressive and successful, and the species of plasmodium that it carries is especially deadly and more likely to cause severe, long-lasting cases. And you might have noticed that the number of deaths has gone down substantially in just a couple of years, 620,000 in 2017, down to 409,000 two years later. And part of that is the consequence of better dissemination of the know-how and equipment required to achieve those low-hanging fruit solutions. The nets, the indoor spraying, that kind of thing. Part of that decrease, though, is attributable to anti-malarial drugs, which are typically anti-parasitic, and derived from natural compounds. Quinine was one such early drug, but there are many others at this point, all of which have pros and cons, groups that will benefit from them more than others, and some, like artemisinin, which is a drug of last resort that's only tried once all other drugs have been shown not to work, are becoming less effective with time because some species of malarial parasite, like those in Southeast Asia, are developing a resistance to it, which obviously is not ideal. And though there are ongoing efforts to limit the use of these drugs, so that resistance is less likely to develop and spread amongst these parasitic populations, it's a fair bet that the mutation will be favorable enough that at some point, all of these drugs will be less useful or even useless against some species of malarial parasite. And that brings us to an article from Nature, which is entitled, Malaria Vaccine Shows Promise, Now Come Tougher Trials. I intentionally buried the lead in this episode, because it's important, I think, to set the context for something like malaria to make it clear just how monumental such a vaccine if it ends up making it to the public use stage at least, could be. In the early clinical trials that have been completed, this vaccine, which is currently called R21, was up to 77% effective at preventing malaria in children ages 5 to 17 months for up to a year. 
This new vaccine is based on an earlier vaccine that has already been deployed and which has been shown to be 56% effective for about a year and 36% effective for about four years. 75% effectiveness is a somewhat magical number in the vaccine world as that level allows vaccines to leap a hurdle set by the World Health Organization, putting it in a more credible category of medical intervention, opening up a lot of opportunities for production and deployment, and allowing them to hit a goal set by the organization to reach 75% effectiveness in a malaria vaccine by 2030. So 77%, which is higher than 75%, is pretty exciting. Additionally, the Serum Institute of India which has played a vital role in producing COVID-19 vaccines at scale and at a rapid pace, has already committed to producing at least 200 million doses of R21 each year if it is authorized for use. This new vaccine, in addition to being more potent compared to those seemingly less effective ancestor drugs, was also designed to be cheaper which should help with production and distribution, as many of the regions most impacted by malaria are not wealthy. There are still some vital questions that have not been answered yet, though, which could determine whether this vaccine proves to be game-changing or just another version of what's already available. The first, of course, is whether that high 70s effectiveness level is maintained after the next larger study, which has already begun. If it is still more effective than what's already on the market, this will still be an important drug because of that higher effectiveness and lower cost. But 75% or higher would change a lot in terms of outcomes, because at the societal level, that's a phenomenal decrease in infections, and thus the consequence of infections, like infant mortality and chronic infections. That milestone was set by the World Health Organization because it would potentially allow them to then eventually either eliminate or mostly eliminate the disease worldwide. And doing that would be very, very difficult and expensive, lacking a vaccine with that level of effectiveness. The second is whether there will be side effects that show up in the new trial that didn't show up in the previous one because the test size was relatively small, several hundred test subjects, rather than the thousands they'll be working with, with the new trial. Even an amazing drug can be sidelined if some significant percentage of those receiving it have something even worse happen to them as a consequence. And history has shown that malaria drugs in particular seem to be fairly harsh in the side effect department. And then third, there is also a chance, and this would almost certainly be an amazing outcome, though perhaps a bit less so for the folks behind this specific R21 vaccine, there's a chance that another vaccine method will prove to be more effective. There are already researchers and pharmaceutical companies knee-deep in efforts to use the messenger RNA technology that was utilized to make most of the new COVID-19 vaccines to produce a vaccine for malaria, alongside, by the way, a number of other things, from tuberculosis to HIV to some types of cancer. There are already early results for some of the trials, not in humans yet, but they're still promising within that context 
and those results indicate that mRNA vaccines might wipe the floor with other types of vaccines for many diseases and conditions, potentially including malaria. So although the more traditional approach used for R21 is amazing and potentially world-changing in what it would enable, Another solution that could be even better, in some ways at least, could be right around the corner. And either type of vaccine victory would make all the difference for regions suffering under the weight and the long-term medical and psychological costs of dealing with a persistent plague of this kind. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. And this is by an author who I've read work by before, Annalie Newitz. And I've really enjoyed those other books. I also enjoyed this one. I was trying to think of something to say about it that would concisely explain what it is. And it turns out that the summary for the book that I found on Google Books actually does a better job than I was going to. So I'm just going to read that. Quote, a quest to explore some of the most spectacular ancient cities in human history and figure out why people abandoned them. In Four Lost Cities, acclaimed science journalist Annalie Newitz takes readers on an entertaining and mind-bending adventure into the deep history of urban life. Investigating across the centuries and around the world, Newitz explores the rise and fall of four ancient cities, each the center of a sophisticated civilization, end quote. And that tour does take you around the world. It takes you to Turkey and Rome, the megacity of Angkor, home of Angkor Wat in Cambodia, and someplace close to where I grew up, Cahokia, in the central United States near the Mississippi River. Newitz does a very good job of describing these places, of introducing you to the history behind them, and then also explaining some of the theories and data behind those theories of why they were abandoned and how they evolved in different ways. The areas, but also the cities themselves, these former hubs. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Four Lost Cities by Annalie Newitz. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my daily news summarizing email at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.